So um, it's an interesting evening to give a talk uh, because um, it's a, a night that I think you're all aware that it's not every, every night we don't do this, right? But once in a while we do this. It's kind of culturally centric to uh, have uh, a New Year's Eve in the culture we're, ha we're in, the greater culture, on uh, December 31st. Uh, even though many cultures don't celebrate New Year's tonight, you know that, right? Like, um, really, in the in the culture I grew up in, we have a whole nother time for New Year's. It's not this is not the Jewish New Year, but I'm I'm conforming for the evening, <laughs> and. Uh, and, uh, you know, and sometimes I used to have a list of different New Year's and when they happen, because it happens all different times of the year, depending on what culture you're in or what nationality you're part of and or what part of the world you're from. And I always find that so fascinating because it tells me something, which is about New Year's, which is we're making it up. <laughs> and and at least that's how it seems to me and I mean I'm I like creativity I appreciate <laughs> that, that humans are very creative and we're all humans so you know but but conventionally um, 2018 is Wait, it's still here. I was going to say it's gone, but it's not gone yet. But it will be gone soon. Do you remember 2017? Do you remember what you were doing on uh, July 24th of 2017? Does anybody remember what they were doing? Okay, well, a couple people, great. <laughs> Great, a few, three, that's good. I mean, I have no idea what I was doing until the 23rd. But what I do remember was it was very real, July 23rd and 4th and 5th of July 17th. I mean, of 2017. <laughs> but but um, it's gone, as far as I can tell. I mean, it's, it might be in your heart and mind, and, you know, but... It's so interesting how real things are and then how gone they are, right? Do you remember the least interesting day of 2018? <laughs> right? I mean, usually those kind of days, we're happy they're gone, right? We don't even worry about them being gone. And so many things happened in 2018 that I can't remember most of them. And, and mostly I don't really care about most of it. You know, it was, it was all whatever it was. You know, it was good or bad or, you know, I liked it or I didn't like it or I was happy or infuriated depending on, you know, what was happening that day. But, but there's something so interesting about how things come and go. Even our lives just come and go. You know, 2018, it's, it's almost out of here. And so part of the question or of this reflection is, how do you relate to the fact that everything is impermanent? Right? How do you respond to the fact that everything changes, right? And of course, I was just asking you about 2017. I mean, I was thinking, oh yeah, remember how important um, uh, the change of the century was? Like, that was a big deal. Does it seem like a big deal anymore? 
like that's that's just old hat that happened you know almost 20 years ago now almost 19 years ago if i'm being precise you know and that was so big like wow the 19th century remember that no, the, no, no, you don't. You remember the 20th century. Sorry. I mean, I'd be impressed if some of you do remember the 19th century. But I mean, 1999, like even that. What a, you know, that's kind of a nice number for a year, 1999. But, you know, I really, God, I don't remember any of that. <laughs> And, and, but I know it was really important when it was happening, right? Because it was real, it was, it was something. So just to reflect about how do you relate to impermanence in, in your life or in your relationships, because things change and even, even if you stay the same, people don't stay the same, I mean, you know, Pam and I, I've known her for a while now and she keeps changing. And, uh, <laughs> and I think she would say the same about me, mostly. Except for the things she's not happiest about. Then <laughs> she would say, that's been the same the whole time. <laughs> no, she's actually very kind, but it's really true. We both keep changing. And it's kind of one of the fun things about being together is we don't know who we are. We don't know who each other is. We keep learning about who we are. Who the other, because the other person doesn't stay the same. Hmm. Have you noticed that the retreat keeps changing? <laughs> <laughs> That was a good laugh from somewhere over there. That was, somebody noticed that three three keeps changing. Um, you know, and, and I mean, I don't. I think the form mostly we're staying close to the same form, but even every sitting is different. It's not the same sitting. Even if it's similar, it's never the same. Right. And it's really a key teaching in Buddhism, which is that all things are impermanent. All things are impermanent. And it's in many of the different teachings, the three characteristics of reality, anicca, dukkha, anatta, impermanence, difficulty, and no permanent self. But if it starts with Anicca, which is impermanence, the teaching of Anicca. And I appreciate that being a key understanding that is pointed at in Buddhism, <clears throat> that nothing is static in reality. Everybody agree with that, that nothing is static? So I hope you appreciate that reality is not static, and the actual word for that is ecstatic. Come on, I'm sneaking one in here now. It's ecstatic reality, actually, because it's alive and always new, always changing. You know, and I think maybe I've said this already here, but right, this moment has never happened before, right? And will never happen again, actually. So there's a beautiful Buddhist chant that uh, I'll mostly just say, because I'm not a great chanter, meaning I'm not a good singer, but... Anicca vata sankara upadvaya dhamano Upakitu nirajanti te sang wu pasamo suko. All things are impermanent. Their nature is to arise and pass away. To live in harmony with this truth, to live in harmony with this truth brings the highest happiness.
to live in harmony with this truth brings the highest happiness. And really, I, if I was um, bolder, I would end the talk right there because that's such a beautiful understanding and teaching to live in harmony with the way things are, with the Dharma, with the truth. And, you know, I, I love that, but also it's a counterintuitive understanding, right? That everything's impermanent, its nature is to arise and pass, come and go, and to live in harmony with that brings the highest happiness. That's not an intuitive understanding in my experience. That's something that one lives with and discovers because it's true in our, in our experience every day that everything is changing. And so I think of it a little as the magic or beauty or wonder of reality that it's all just appearing for a moment and disappearing. And that's true of everything in reality. It's not a bad thing, it's not a mistake, it's not, oh, we didn't do it right. I mean, even things that look like they'll last forever, and some things last a long time. I mean, like the statues, metal statues, they, they hang around for a while, but even the, at some point they just, you know, they appear for a moment or a while, and then they disappear. And so one of the blessings of getting older is really having uh, that kind of perspective of seeing the whole show and seeing how it comes and goes. And different, sometimes people talk about past lives. I, I, don't, I don't know about past lives. You know, I, I've had my experiences, but really what I know is I've had past lives in this life. Right, I could, I can tell you, and I'll name a few of my different past lives. You know, first, you know, I was born and raised in Detroit, and I had a whole life there, and it was a good life there. And I'm a very Detroit positive person, actually. Um, and uh, but then I, you know, I left. I, you know, I finally graduated from high school, which I quit a few times, and uh, I went to New York, and uh, and I lived in New York, and then I had a whole different life in New York, and I ended up doing radical political street theater on the streets of New York, and it was great. It was a great life, and I really enjoyed it, and. Uh, you know, but it was, and it was with a group of people, and we, you know, we passed the hat. We did Donna. We didn't even know there was Donna. We just passed the hat. That's how, that, that's how we got money, you know, and then we, there were some other ways we got money too, but I can't say that here. And, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and, you know, that was a, a really a beautiful life. I learned so much in New York, and, uh, and then the street theater went and left, decided to leave New York because they'd had it with New York. So we ended up moving to Oregon. And we didn't kind of get, we were a little young. And so we didn't get, there were no streets in Oregon like New York. <laughs> so we're out in the country and we, you know, we were a commune. And we, and we had a, some land and none, nobody knew what to do with land. We didn't, we were from New York. And... Uh, <laughs> And, and so we learned, you know, and then there was this whole life, you know, in Oregon. And, and <laughs> it's, it's true, you can laugh about it. It was, many people did laugh when they came and visited us. Really, really the funniest thing. We had two houses on the land and there was a big house and then a small house. We built a few cabins. I built a cabin, lived in a cabin. But people would come into the small house and there were two young women living there who I'm still friends with one of them. And uh, people would come into their house and they would look around and they would look at the house and it was kind of filled with ashtrays and cigarettes and stuff. And they would look and they would say, wow, this looks just like the Lower East Side. <laughs> 
And, you know, I mean, people do what they know, so. <laughs> and, uh, but it was good. It got me out to the West Coast, and I actually had started playing music in the street theater, and it was great. And I, but I really, when we got to the West Coast, then I really wanted to learn music. So I got a job at a music company learning how to repair woodwinds so it would support my music habit. I was playing the flute and learning the flute and having a great time being a musician. And I was a musician for many years. And even when I came down to San Francisco, like then I had another life in San Francisco as a musician. And it was like there was no more street theater was over. We That went kaput in Oregon. And, uh, and I was down here and I was repairing musical instruments and playing music and practicing every day. And I could practice some days, eight hours a day. And uh, taught me a lot about meditation before I knew about meditation to practice eight hours a day. And I had a, a small performing space in my house in San Francisco. And so I had people from all over the world perform in that space because uh, there was no fee for coming in because I just was a street theater guy. You just asked for donations, you know, which I'm still doing and I'll ask you in a few days for some. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> and, and so, <laughs> And so, you know, so I had a whole life with music and I played improvised music. I was very moved by, by jazz and improvised music and out there jazz and, you know, really people who I have so much love and respect for like Thelonious Monk or Ornette Coleman or John Coltrane or, or Eric Dolphy who was my favorite because he was a flute player and brilliant musician and... Uh, and all kinds of people, uh, and I didn't get John Coltrane or Eric Dolphy to perform at my little space, but I did get a lot of different people from around the country and even some from around the world who would come and perform, and it was great. And then that life ended at some point, you know, it just was, and I played for many years, and then it was like not, the right thing anymore and so things change because things are impermanent even being a musician was impermanent and then I became a, a therapist which I'd wanted to do and knew a lot about because I'd been in therapy a lot <laughs> and, and it'd been very helpful for me and I went to school and I got a BA and an MA in like four years and so I had a whole new life right? Being a, you know, like a regular person, therapist. <laughs> and then I got involved with meditation and sitting here, even at the beginning with Spirit Rock, before we had this beautiful building or anything, we just had, we had, uh, you know, trailers that they made to look like a meditation hall. And, uh, and I did, and I started doing retreats like this. And then after a while, Jack Cornfield asked me if I'd be interested in teaching, and which I like. Are you kidding? I didn't say that to him, but I felt that. And uh, and so then, and I said, and if he thought I could teach, I was like, sure, I would teach. But I'd never planned to be a, a meditation teacher. And so then a whole nother life started. And you know, and, after, and then I'm also a teacher in the diamond approach. So I teach in two traditions. And then I, at some point I stopped being a therapist and a, then I became a teacher. And so I'm just pointing to the impermanence or the different lives I've lived in this life. And they all have their pluses and minuses and good, but there's something amazing about impermanence and change and each moment and going with it because it's going to happen whether we go with it or not. And the harmony of going with it is where the power is or where the, in my, uh, my assessment, where the goodness is. 
And even when I was a young man and a musician, I mean, one of the people when I was growing up who influenced me a lot was Bob Dylan. And I always, I always really heard this one line from a song. I can't remember the, which song it was. But he said, he not busy being born is busy dying. He not busy being born is busy dying. And it's pointing at the impermanence because we're being born every moment and something's falling away every moment. Because there's a new you every day, right? Really every moment. But, you know, if we want to be a little more conventionally thinking about it, just each day, right? Your cells are changing, your thoughts are changing, your your experience is changing. You're not the same person you were yesterday. And usually we know it more when we go back four years. Then we know, oh yeah, I'm not that person anymore. But really, two weeks ago, whoever you were, that's not the person who's here. And even the person who was here yesterday is not the person who's here today. The person who was here yesterday, you want me to tell you where they are? They're gone. Yesterday is gone. Whoever that was is gone. We tend to try to think ourselves into continuity. But actually, it's all arising and passing moment by moment, this magical human reality. And just because I was a musician and I, I loved Charlie Mingus, who was a bass player. He said, in my music, I'm trying to play the truth of what I am. This is why I love the improvised music and why it's so much similar to meditation for me. Because we're not trying to change anything here. We're trying to get with the truth of what's here in the moment. And the same was true in improvised music, that the people I learned from, like Mingus or Monk or, you know, Ornad or... Um, they were all expressing the truth of the moment. And they knew something about that. And he said, in my music, I'm trying to play the truth of what I am. And the reason it's difficult is because I'm changing all the time. And that's why, that's why jazz is so beautiful. It's not a static music. It's a music that expresses something true, in my opinion, about reality. And so things change. And learning to come into harmony with that change is one of the ways awakening is talked about in Buddhism. It's said in the Pali Canon, it's a very common description of awakening. It said, a spotless, immaculate vision of the Dharma arose in him or her a spotless immaculate vision of the Dharma rose in her or him. Everything that is subject to arising is subject to passing away. This is an expression of awakening, is the seeing of it, the knowing of it. Not as an idea, but knowing it, the truth of it experientially. And it's one of the things we're learning here, because no sitting is actually the the, the last sitting is gone, right? Even the first part of this talk is gone. Even if I said the same things, it wouldn't be the same. And so this truth about coming and going and the truth of impermanence and that 2018 is almost gone is part of what wakes us up to discover who and what we are and re what is reality. The other person who said something very beautiful about this that I like is uh, Suzuki Roshi. He said, when he realized no moment could be repeated, he was awakened when he realized no moment could be repeated, he was awakened. It's, 
it's really so simple that it's difficult because we don't actually believe no moment could be repeated. We really think, oh yeah, I feel the same as yesterday, or this happened before, or that's the same breath that I've been breathing for, you know, 50 years now, or 40 or 30 or 20 years. It's just the same. It's actually not. But we're projecting our ideas of permanence on things that are impermanent. So one of the blessings of realizing the truth of impermanence is something in our hearts and minds begins to relax or find some ease, or find some peace. Because we realize, this is a very Eugene way to say it, that there's nothing we can actually hold on to. That there's nothing we can actually hold on to. And of course, I'm happy for you to tell me or leave me notes and tell me about what you could hold on to. Because I, don't, I haven't seen that it's possible to hold on to anything. And there's some freedom that comes as we let go. Or in the, the traditional way it's talked about is freedom through non-clinging. Freedom through non-clinging, not holding on, not grasping, not trying to fixate reality, which is not static, so we can't fix it. It's ecstatic reality. It's all just coming and going. Whether it's our friends, or our loved ones, or our work, or our communities, or our selves, our, even our feelings, it's all just coming and going. And when we start to not hold on, something begins to feel free. So classically in the Buddhist teaching, this is from the Majjhima Nikaya, here's a, from the Buddha who says, how do you understand this, practitioners? If a person were to gather or burn or do as she or he likes with the grasses, twigs, branches, and leaves here in Jetta's Grove, would the thought occur to you, it's us that this person is gathering, burning, or doing with as he or she likes? So is that clear, the image, right? Somebody's, you know, somebody's raking the lawn at Jet to the Grove and going to burn the leaves. And, and would we say, would we think, oh, that's us the person is gathering or burning or doing with? And they say, no, no, sir, no, you're honorable, you're venerable. Why, why is that? He says, because those things are not ourself and do not pertain to ourself, the leaves and grasses and twigs. And he says, he gives the teaching, he said, even so, practitioners, whatever is not yours, let go of it. Whatever is not yours, let go of it. Your letting go of it will be for your long-term happiness and well-being. And what is not yours, that's a good reflection. Of course, he gives the answer. He says, form is not yours. Feeling is not yours. Perception is not yours. Mental processes are not yours. Consciousness is not yours. Let go of it. Your letting go of it will be for your long-term happiness and well-being. So it's a very simple teaching about letting go. But it's not, again, it's not 
it's a little counterintuitive, the teaching. What does it mean to let go of form? It means we don't own our bodies, right? They're bodies, they're here. They come and they go. So don't hold on to it. Of course, take care of it, feed it, bathe it, take it to the bathroom, sleep it, do all that stuff for the body. But don't just identify with it. Maybe you're not just your body. Don't hold on. What is not yours? Feeling is not yours. Perception is not yours. Mental processes, consciousness is not yours. They're here, but we don't own any of it. It's all coming and going. It's all arising on its own. And it's quite magical that way. Because we have thoughts and feelings and all kinds of sensations, sights and sounds and tastes and touch, and it's all happening on its own. So that's a very profound teaching about letting go and not holding on to experience. Doesn't mean, he's not saying don't have experience, because we, we have experience and will have experience. Don't hold on to it. And of course, just to be technical, hold on, holding on means don't grasp or don't push away. Those are both forms of holding on. Right? But be here for the whole show, because it's a wild show. In this is not the Buddha, this is more Eugene's language now. It is, it's a, it's a magical show that we're here. That we're here for a while, just like everything else. We appear and we sustain for a moment or a while, and then we're gone, at least as we know ourselves. And then we'll see what happens next. Maybe the arising and passing continues forever. Let, let's see. But it's by learning how to be here that we start to wake up to the way things are and to the truth of impermanence and the freedom that comes from not holding on, from letting the freedom that comes with letting go. Hmm. Ajahn Chah said it this way, and of course we, we teach and practice here at Spirit Rock in the tradition of Ajahn Chah, who was a Theravadan uh, monk in Thailand, Jack Cornfield's main teacher, and, uh, and uh, beautiful being, and not afraid to be real. That's one of the things I really love about Ajahn Chah. He wasn't afraid to be real. Just for example, here, wait first, I'll read what I was going to read. He says, if you let go a little, you will have a little happiness. If you let go a lot, you will have a lot of happiness. If you let go completely, you will be free. And he knew this in his direct experience. And if you've ever seen, uh, there are some photos around of Ajahn Chah around Spirit Rock, and he's totally, really good guy, and really, just you see in his presence a lot of happiness. And uh, and I know when Jack was first teaching in America, he went back and saw Ajahn Chah, and you know Jack was learning how to teach Buddhism here. And uh, he told Ajahn Chah some of the problems people had with Buddhist language and Buddhist concepts. And Ajahn Chah said, well, you know, if that's a problem, call it Christianity. <laughs> right? Now that's, that's a very free person. Because he didn't care about, it wasn't Buddhism he was selling. He, was, he wanted people to be free. And so if, if the principles wouldn't come through Buddhism, 
say them, talk about Christianity and where they are in Christianity. I don't think Jack quite went there, but Jack, you know, Jack knows how to teach outside the box also. And so Ajahn Chah, he just pointed to it like many of the Buddhist teachers. And of course, letting go is paradoxical because it's not mechanical. Like, and really when I'm practicing, I don't let go. I don't, I don't really try to let go. You know, here, 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 you want to see, here's letting go, right? <laughs> Easy to let go. But I'm not attached to this. When I'm attached, oh, watch, I'm going to let go. <laughs> I, can't, I can't let go of it. But what I can do is be aware of the attachment and the experience happen, that happens that is there and how letting go starts to do itself rather than I'm doing it. And it's fine to let go of things that we can let go of easily, mechanically, but the really difficult things, what I've seen in my own experience is I don't let go. I stay present with them and then they start to let me go. And it's like, it's just a gift. It's because it's freedom. Because attachment is not um, happiness. But it means, what it asks of me, can I be with it fully? Can I be with it fully, not reject it? Letting go is not rejection. It's not denial. It's not saying, no, 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 forget it. I'm not never going to feel that. If, we, if I have a feeling I don't like, I can't get rid of it. It's here but I can be with it until it lets me go. And here's a quote from a woman teacher named Devi who said, students come and say, I've had trouble letting go. She said, that's normal. Everybody wants to let go, but how do you let go if you don't hold things, if you don't touch things with full consciousness, with a totally open heart? Beautiful teaching from Debbie. If you don't touch things in full consciousness with a totally open heart, the first thing is having the experience of touch, of profound contact with things, with the universe, without a lot of commotion. Everything begins there, touching the universe deeply. And if you let go before touching deeply, that brings on turmoil. Many beginning yogis make this mistake. They let go before taking hold. The heart is never opened. They enter into a sterile void. I would use the word emptiness, a sterile void or emptiness, and remain imprisoned. When you touch deeply, you no longer need to let go. That occurs naturally. Hmm. It's a beautiful understanding from Devi. And so I want to add to her understanding about the naturalness of how awareness starts to reveal letting go. And I said this in some of the meetings, I can't remember the group or individuals, and I said to people, I would say this tonight, um, that um, word, the word sati, which is translated as mindful, is equally translated as awareness. And so we're being aware of our experience, right? Everybody got that? That's what we're doing here. We're being aware of our body, of our breath. We've opened up to feelings and emotions, mental states today. We're going to keep opening to thoughts 
And of course, we're aware of sounds and smells and tastes and what, whatever's here. And we're mostly we've been staying with body and breath just to keep getting centered in being aware and present moment by moment by moment, even as the moments change, because each breath is brand new. It's a brand new breath. Um, uh, one of the things I like to say about awareness is where we be aware of the co- the content, and then also we want to be aware of what is aware, right? And you can play with this. We can play for a moment right now. Is anybody here not aware right now? <laughs> Raise your hand if you're not aware. Okay, every then we're all aware. Now, where is the awareness itself? I know you're aware, you're aware of what I'm saying or what you're feeling or what, I'm, or what you're thinking or the, yeah, but where is the awareness? Anybody know? You could say, if it's like a word or two, you can't give me a, a scientific paragraph or anything. But anybody know where the awareness is? Pardon? Maybe, but where is that? Right, that's one way you could talk about it, the observer. Ajahn Chah had a similar way of uh, languaging it. He, he would talk about becoming aware of the one who knows, right? Very similar. And, but, but where is it? Yeah, that's one idea. That may be, maybe everywhere. Emergent property of how what? Neurons are connected. That's a nice idea, but you know, I I I don't have any neurons that that I know of experientially. I'm looking for an experiential answer, right? It's not. I mean, that's what scientific mythology is about neurons, and it maybe have its scientific truth, but it's the current mythology of our time and era and culture is scientific. And you know, I I can go along with neurons, but I I get a little, um, this is just me being honest, I get a little irritated at the science, because they, scientists, because they think they discovered awareness. And and it's been happening way before they discovered neurons, right? And it may be one way to talk about the mechanics of what happens but I don't think it really touches the truth of awareness itself. Because where is the awareness? Is it in the neurons? And of course, I don't know, but uh, here's what I want to say, so I'll go there now. Right, there's what we're aware of, and then there's the awareness which is not bound to what it's aware of. This is, I'm quoting Eugene Cash here. (laughs) The awareness is not bound to what it's aware of. For me, that's interesting, right? Because the awareness, whether I'm aware of sound, sight, taste, touch, smell, feeling, thought, emotion, the awareness doesn't care doesn't have a reaction, is not bound to it, but it, things are being known because there's awareness. Somebody talked about the observer, maybe that's one way to talk about it. Ajahn Chah talked about the one who knows, but I have no idea where it is. Is the one who knows in the neurons? I don't know, but I know there's something that knows here, right here, and it's not bound to what it knows. Now I want to be careful here, because I know I can get bound to anything. Eugene's good at that. 
he can get attached to a thought or a feeling or an idea or or something he likes to see or not wanting to see or whatever it is. Eugene can get attached to anything. But the awareness is not bound to any of that. Because the awareness even knows that Eugene gets attached. So letting go and the impermanent nature of reality. And the awareness that's not bound to what is known points to freedom that's already here. It's already part of our experience because the awareness is right here as far as I can tell. And maybe it's everywhere. Maybe some people experience that. Okay, I'm open to that. But, but it's right here. Even when I'm bound to something, the awareness is not bound to it. Awareness is just aware. And so I would encourage you to start to, I don't even want to say it that way, I would encourage you to just rest in the awareness a little bit. That is how we know anything. Because right? if we weren't aware, we wouldn't, we wouldn't be having an experience. And that can happen sometimes. It actually doesn't happen a lot, but does happen a little in practice. And there's an experience where awareness goes away. And it's only known in retrospect. It can't be known experientially because there's no awareness there then. But that's another talk that we'll do sometime. But right now we're just playing with the fact that everything is impermanent, changing here and gone. And that we're learning how to find our ease in the fact that we don't and can't hold on to anything really. So I have two different quotes to end. One of them is very funny, and one of them is more poignant. What do you want, funny or poignant? Both. both. <laughs> okay. I'm an easy sell for both, because I like them both. So this is Ajahn Sumedho talking about the practice of letting go. He said, it's very effective for minds obsessed by compulsive thinking. You simplify your meditation practice just down to two words, let go. Right? That's your whole practice, let go, letting go. Rather than try to develop this practice and then develop that practice and achieve this and go into that, understand this, read the suttas, study the Abhidharma, then learn Pali and Sanskrit, and then the Madhyamaka and the Prajnaparamita and get ordinations in the Theravada, Mahayana, Vajrayana, write books, become a world-renowned authority on Buddhism. Instead of becoming the world's expert on Buddhism, being invited to great international Buddhist conferences, just let go. <laughs> let go. Let go, he says. He said, I did nothing but this for two years. I did not, this was his practice for two years. I did nothing but this for two years. Every time I tried to understand or figure things out, I'd say, let go, let go, until the desire would, would fade out. And so I'm making it very simple for you to save yourself from getting caught in incredible amounts of suffering. There's nothing more sour, sor sorrowful. There's nothing more sorrowful than having to attend international Buddhist conferences. 
And he would know because he's attended them. So, so you can let your you can let your practice be very simple. It's a breath, and it's coming and going, and you just let it come and you let it go, and then thoughts are going to come and go, and feelings are going to come and go, and it's not like we pretend they're not here, they're not, and they don't have their momentary reality, but we don't have to hold on to them, grasp them, stay ident We don't have to own them. We can use them skillfully at times because thoughts are good and feelings are important and sensations, it's good. You know, if, you're, if your knee hurts too much, you know, move after an hour or two or whatever. But, but, but the inside, just let go. And here's a last piece from uh, William Blake, who said, she who binds herself to a joy does the winged life destroy. She who binds herself to a joy does the winged life destroy. But she who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise. I could say it more mutual for gender-wise. One who binds themselves to a joy does the winged life destroy. But one who kisses the joy as it flies, that arises and passes like all joys, lives in eternity's sunrise. Beautiful metaphor for freedom. So let's sit for a minute, please. One who binds themselves to a joy does the winged life destroy. But one who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise. Thank you for your kind attention. We'll have a period of walking meditation. And then uh, I'm looking for the schedule. Right, we'll have a period of walking practice. Oh, actually, yeah. And then we'll come back for the last, not the last sit, for the next sit, for the nine o'clock sitting. So yeah, half an hour for walking and then sitting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.